This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. I'm Jeb Blunt, best-selling author of Fanatical Prospecting and Sales EQ, and I'm here to help you open more doors, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. On this episode of Sales Gravy, I have a conversation with Chris McDonough. He's a talented and successful sales leader at ZoomInfo, one of my favorite sales tools. Chris and I talk about why it's stupid to avoid objections, how to reduce buyer resistance, how to manage your disruptive emotions in the face of objections, and techniques for skipping past objections. Before we get started, a short message about ZoomInfo. My entire team at SalesGravy uses ZoomInfo, and we've integrated it right into our CRM. You see, Zoom Info helps us quickly identify the prospects and stakeholders we're looking for based on industry, location, company size, company revenue, and job title. And with Zoom Info, we get more direct dial numbers and email addresses than with any other market intelligence provider. If you don't believe me, go check it out yourself. You can try Zoom Info for free right now. That's free by going to zoom.salesgravy.com. That's zoom.salesgravy.com for a free trial of one of my favorite sales tools, Zoom Info. Now, here's my conversation with Chris McDonough on skipping past sales objections. Jeb, thank you for joining Zoom Info for this webinar. As a sales manager here at Zoom Info, my sales team, like most sales teams, battle overcoming objections on a daily basis. So, to get us started, can you share what are some common objections sales may come across when speaking with a prospect? Yeah, there's there's four key types of objections that we run into in sales, and they're not what you normally think about. So typically when we think about objections, we think about objections like, I'm not interested, or it costs too much, or I've got to go talk to my boss. Those are the things we typically fixate on. But if you think about sales as a process, all the way from prospecting into getting a deal closed, there are four places where you get objections in a deal. The first place is prospecting objections. They typically uh, become the most harsh objections. They're the reasons why in the pre-show, you and I were talking about why people don't prospect, because these objections can be tough. They can be difficult. And because you're interrupting a stranger, uh, they happen really, really fast. And you have to be good on your feet when you're dealing with these objections. Then there are red herring objections. And these are not necessarily objections. They're just things that prospects typically say at the beginning of a sales call that have a tendency to derail salespeople inside of a sales call. So for example, if one of you are saying a demo, and at the very beginning of the process, a particular demo, and then off to the race as the rep goes, getting off a of process, chasing down that red herring, then you end up burning up the 30 minutes you had for the demo, chasing something that didn't really matter that much. So red, red herring demos are much more about getting control of the call. Then there are micro-commitment and next-step objections. And these are the objections that reps get when they're trying to advance a deal through the pipeline. So uh, this, this, where reps really mess up is, if you, and you've probably seen this as a sales manager, you've got deals in the pipeline that are stalled. Almost every deal in your pipeline that stalled is because the rep didn't get insecure a next step. And the next step is something that's on the prospect's calendar and on your calendar. So next step objections happen when you ask the person, hey, let's set up this, or let's do a pilot, or let's let's talk to your boss, or what have you. Whatever the next step is, you get those. And then finally, there are buying commitment objections. And these are the objections that we traditionally get. These are the, the sexy objections, if you want to call them that. These are the objections when I ask for the deal and I'm trying to close the deal, the person says, whoa, 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 whoa. 
I need to go think about it, or this costs too much, or I don't like the terms and conditions inside of your contract. So when, as a sales professional, when you learn how to manage each of these four types of objections inside of the sales process, what happens is, is you get far more effective inside the sales process in advancing your deals. And it reduces your stress because you know exactly where the objections are going to come in. And there are techniques that you can leverage along the way to both reduce the number of objections you get. And when you get them, easily skip past them so you can keep your deal advancing. Thank you, Jeb. So we received a question from the audience already. Uh, Rachel in the audience asked, so you mentioned red herring objections. Can you identify one and what is the best way to deal with it? Yeah, a great example would be, uh, let's just say, let's just take Zoom Info for a second. And by the way, I, I love Zoom Info. My entire team uses Zoom Info. But, you know, along the, the path to getting to Zoom Info, we use a number of your competitors. And most of your competitors are, are not as good as you are. And this is one of the reasons why so many people flock to your platform. But just as, as for example, let's just say that, uh, that you're one of your salespeople, Chris, cops on the phone with a potential prospect. And let's say that they've used some of your competitors. And if, if anybody's used a Zoom Info competitor, you know that it can be disappointing. So mm -hmm. they hop on the phone with the rep, the rep sets up the call today. What I want to do is spend some time learning about you and your business, how you use data, how you prospect, how you go to market. And the person says, well, listen, you know, we used one of your competitors in the past and we found this, 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 and this, and we didn't like any of those things. And I'm not signing up for this if you guys do those things. Yeah. And at that moment, instead of the rep saying, hey, no problem, I, you know, I'm glad that you've had those experiences and I'll be able to address those. Why don't you let me ask some questions about you first so we can figure out whether or not this makes, a, makes sense for you? The rep goes, well, we don't do that or we do this better or blah, 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 blah. So the rep immediately starts pitching on something that's essentially just a reflex response from the prospect who are trying to protect themselves from getting into a situation that they've experienced before. It can happen with an old customer. So you, you, you re-engage an old customer and say they had a bad experience with billing or customer service or what have you. And they tell you up front, hey, they had a really bad experience with you doing this. And the rep, instead of saying, hey, you know, a lot of things have changed, but why don't we start off by helping me get a better understanding of you? And then we can talk about what we do and whether or not it makes, makes sense. The rep off to the races again, starts treating that initial, hey, I had a bad experience with you as an objection, derails the sales call, right? And, 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 the, and you know, burns 30 minutes doing nothing but getting into a debate with the customer. And it happens all the time. Another place that it can happen that can be really, really dangerous is when you're doing group presentations. So you have a multiple people, and this could be virtually by phone or by video, or it could be in person. And let's just say that you have four or five people in the room that you're presenting to. In those situations, there's always someone in the room that needs to feel significant or important. So they start off by throwing something on the table that could potentially derail your presentation. If you don't stop and breathe and relax in that moment and gain control of the presentation, what happens is you go down a path that derails your sales call, derails your presentation, that does not advance the deal. And those are, those are typically red, where red herrings happen. They can happen at any place, but the key with red herrings is you have to maintain control in order to move the deal forward and not get derailed. Yeah, so it sounds like not losing control of the sales process is key and not kind of jumping from standard protocol is, is a major focus there. Absolutely. And it's a, it's, this is an emotional thing. Because when someone challenges you or it feels like they're attacking you or you feel in the moment like you're about to get rejected or 
that something negative could happen, you become emotional and you're and what happens at that moment, you start trying to protect yourself and your mouth starts moving. So the key thing here is maintaining emotional control and then and then and moving to the next step. And the way that you want to maintain maintain control in this situation is a, a, a little um, process we use called PAIS, which is pause, acknowledge, ignore, or save. And the pause part is you getting control, executive control of your emotions. So pause for a second and breathe, acknowledge it. And the, the way that I almost always acknowledge red herring objections is I write them down. I just I have a notepad in front of me and you say, blah, 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 blah. And I just write it down and go, is there anything else you want to make sure we cover? And no, that's it. And so, okay, great. And then, and then what I do is I ignore it. Most of the time, a red herring objection will never come back again. It's just something that happens in the beginning. They're just saying it and maybe it's a reflex response. And I'll just go, I do the, you know, the matrix move. You just go, you just let it go by you right there. And you just ask a question of them and get them talking. So I'd just say, I'd say, Chris, that's just fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with me. Hey, before we get started, would it be okay if we could learn a little bit more about you? And if I can get the, the prospect talking, usually it never comes back. Sometimes it's a big enough issue. Sometimes it's a bad experience they've had. Sometimes it could be a pricing issue that's significant from a budgetary standpoint. And in those cases, save it for later. Hold on to it. And maybe not even in this call, maybe it comes back in a second call when you're doing discovery and you want to put that objection on the table, but you have to, you have to have the emotional acuity and emotional control in the moment to just hold on to it for the appropriate time so that you can control the narrative around that particular potential objection. I like that a lot. Uh, I think that that'd be super helpful in our sales process over here. Um, so we received actually another question regarding micro commitment objections that you'd mentioned earlier. Uh, Steve in the audience has asked, uh, how do I battle through a micro-commitment objection? The good news is that you don't have to battle through a micro-commitment objection. When you're asking for a micro-commitment, typically it's a next meeting to do something, right? Or you're looking for data. Can you share this data with me? Or can you give me some additional insight on your business? But typically, a micro-commitment is going to be something that advances your deal. And when someone says, hey, you know, I'm not really interested in moving forward with you, um, or I don't understand why that makes sense. So for example, in field sales, and especially when you're selling industrial products or you're in manufacturing or um, you're doing anything that impacts their site, you, you, could, be, you could be selling you know, office furniture or office automation or any type of service into a business. One of the things you want to do is do a tour of their facility. It's, it's fantastic when you can get people walking, you can get them up, you can walk around with them. They, they change their personality. So I say, Chris, the next step is to do a tour of your warehouse. I'd like to walk through that with you so I can better understand your business. What the person will typically say is, I don't understand why we need to do that. It's just a, it's just a warehouse. There's nothing out there to see. Right? Your objective is to get them up and walking around so that you can continue to advance the deal, build familiarity, and, uh, and, and find opportunities to bridge to solutions that solve their business problems. It could be that, for example, let's say you're selling software as a service, you're setting up a demo, you say, what I'd like to do is get all of the key stakeholders on the phone so we can do a demo. And the person says, I, I don't see any value in doing that. You can just do it for me, and then I'll go tell everybody about it. I'm sure no one in you know, software as a service ever had that problem, right? So what they're saying is I don't see the value of using up you know, my juice to go get other people on the telephone. Essentially what they're saying is you, you haven't given me enough reason to do this. So with micro-commitment objections, it's really easy. 
the first step is using something called a ledge. And all a ledge is is what neuroscientists call the magic quarter of a second that gets your neocortex, your rational brain, in executive control over your emotions. So when the person says, you know, I don't really see why that why I should do that, you immediately take that on as if, if they've rejected you. So your heart starts beating a little faster, you start getting emotional. So what you need to do is just pause for a second. And, and that can sometimes be a ledge, can be a question that you ask and can be something that you say. So for example, when someone says, I don't really see the value of um, doing a tour of our facility. I simply say that makes sense. I mean, a lot of people don't because it seems like just a warehouse for you. But what I'm going to be doing is putting together a blueprint for how we're going to take care of your business. And for me to do that, I need to learn a little bit more about you. And with that blueprint, you'll have all the information that you need and the peace of mind that you have all the information so that you're making the best decision for your company when you make this choice. So how about we get together Thursday at two? And the reality is almost no one says no to that. So if, if, you, if you understand the value to your prospect for going through this process with you, and you understand the value to yourself, and you know how to articulate that value, you understand the messaging, then... When someone gives you a objection to moving to the next step, all you're doing is explaining value, and that begins with controlling your emotions, and in most cases, you're going to get a yes. Now, there are some things, for example, like, let's say, I want to see the invoices for my competitor. Those have about a 50-50 shot of getting you to the next step, but there's no reason why you shouldn't ask. Sometimes I, I want to see my competitor's proposal. They go, well, your competitor is, you know, is, is coming in and they're saying these things. Hey, would it be okay if I could take a look at their proposal? That way I can do an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Um, sometimes when you're asking to get stakeholders around the table, that's tough. And, 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 and maybe a better micro-commitment rather than asking that person to go do the work is say, there are multiple stakeholders in your team. The next step is for me to set up interviews with each of the stakeholders in your team so I can understand what's important to them. And then we can shape a demo around you. And that way you're selling the demo to each of those people. So it's just understanding what those next steps look like and then managing your emotions and then giving them enough value. Now, there's one other thing on next steps that, that I think is important. And we find this when we do these trainings everywhere we go. And this is, I mean, this is in the U.S., this is in South America, this is in Asia, uh, in India. It's always the same. When I sit down with salespeople and I ask them, walk me through what the micro-commitments are that you need to advance a deal all the way from a, a, an appointment first time to closing the deal, the majority of salespeople haven't really thought about exactly what those steps are. So what, what we've done through our CRMs is we've taught salespeople to think about phases, right? So the phase is discovery or the phase is closing or the phase is, is you know, qualification. Th those are CRM steps. Those are not next steps. Mm -hmm. So it's down into, okay, it, what's discovery? Discovery could be four different steps. It could be 10 different steps, especially in enterprise type deals. So what, what, as a salesperson and if you're a sales leader and you're looking at this, a great exercise to run through is to say, okay, what are all of the steps, the micro commitments that we need to move a deal all the way through to close? And I think you'll be surprised at what you come up with when you go through the process and surprised at how little you know about what those steps are. Then once you define those steps, what happens is when you're at the very beginning of your call, you're telling your prospect exactly what the next step is going to be, and you're preframing yes for that, and then that reduces their resistance. So are there things reps can do to keep objections from happening at all in the first place? 
Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the number one thing to, to, to think about as a sales rep is, is A, uh, think about how people respond to other people. One of the things that human beings do, and it's just part of who we are as people, is something called the negativity bias. In other words, when you, when you approach a prospect, whether it's on the telephone, whether it's via video, or whether it's in person, they're not looking for what's right about you. They're looking for what's wrong. And this is just how human beings operate. We look for the negative. And anything, by the way, that's negative stands out. And you know this to be true. Everybody knows this to be true because as a human being, you do this every single day. So the one thing you want to do as a rep is you need to be perfect in everything you do. Now, you won't be perfect because you're human, but you need to strive to be perfect. So you need to make sure that you plan correctly. You need to make sure that you've done your research in advance of a call. Now, I'm not talking about a prospecting call in particular because in prospecting, you know, we're just asking for an appointment. But as you get into the process, you need to make sure that you've done your research, that you understand the next steps that you're asking for, that you, um, that, that you remove uh, any opportunity for someone to see something about you that they, that they would consider to be negative. The next thing that you can do is make sure that you understand that it's important to get objections on the table early. See, most salespeople avoid objections altogether. And I know you've seen this with your own sales team. It's like there's something that's, sit, that's sitting there and, and they just they just scoot around it. Like, like if they don't say anything, it won't happen, right? And then, and then they get blindsided at the close. So mm-hmm. the thing is, is that as you're asking questions, as you're going through discovery, if you sense that there may be some trepidation or if you sense that this might be a problem, simply say, hey, you know, I'm sensing that you're not getting this or I'm sensing this is not connecting with you or it seems like this this could be a potential issue for us. Let's talk about that. Because if you're talking about it in discovery, it's not an objection, it's a conversation. The other thing you need to do is manage the sales process. Number one thing for salespeople is understand the sales process. What are those micro commitments you have to go through? What's step one, step two, step three, step four, step five? Sales is a linear process. It will always be a linear process. It should be a linear process. And when you follow the process, when you trust the process, your results are, crazy as it sounds, awfully predictable. So if you follow the process step by step by step, what happens, especially with buying commitment objections, you eliminate so many buying commitment objections. Why? Because 80% of sales is done in discovery. Most of the time when you're asking questions, you're provoking awareness that a problem exists, that there's an issue that's there. And your prospect then comes to the conclusion that they need to make a change. And then when you're presenting, or we call it bridging in our world, when you're bridging or presenting, all you're doing is connecting the problem that they've already identified, an issue that, that, that you brought to the surface through your questions, you're connecting that to a measurable business outcome. Here's how we solve the problem. And when those two things are connected, most of the time they say yes. Most of the time you're not getting a no or an objection. So if you're doing all of the right things along the way, if you're following the process, most of the time you're not getting a micro-commitment objection. And most of the time the person is, is moving right into the close and just asking some basic questions, but they're not throwing out an objection because they feel like you've got them, you understand them, and that you are connected to what's important to them. And the last thing that you have to do as a salesperson is recognize that in every sales conversation, you have to answer five basic questions for your prospect. Question number one they're asking of you is, do I like you? And if they don't like you, it doesn't make a difference what happens. They're not that into you. They're not going to do business with you. Do you listen to me? Most salespeople are talking instead of listening. And when you're talking, they don't like you. So it's pretty simple um, connection there. Do you make me feel important? 
So every human being has an essential need, an insatiable need to feel important like we matter. So as a salesperson, it's, it's, it's critical that you make your prospect feel important. The easiest, fastest way to make them feel important is to listen to them. They also want to know, do you get me and my problems? Do you understand me and my problems? And if you sell B2B, you have to understand that you're dealing with someone who's spending someone else's money to solve their problem. So it's not just a broad business problem, but you also have to focus on the individual. And when they believe that they get you, you can answer the question, do I trust and believe you? And they trust and believe you when you follow the process, when you go through the steps, when you're not shortcutting, and when you control your emotions in the moment as you move through the sales process. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. So Chris, walk me through a couple of objections that you guys run into and where you get those objections in the process. I'd say one of the biggest objections that we run into, uh, you know this space, there's a ton of noise, everyone has data. And so we'll run into companies that are already partnered with another company that's providing them data. And a lot of times they can be in like a two, three year commitment. And they're like, we have no budget, we're in a commitment. So I'd say that's one of the biggest objections that we run into. How do you handle that in the past when you're advising people? The first thing I want to do is I want to understand where I am in the sales process. So so this is something that I would typically do up front when I'm qualifying. So if I'm talking to someone, they're already in a contract, I want to know what their contract X date is. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And you're exactly right. Your industry in particular uh, has gone down a road of signing people up to long-term agreements. And I came out of an industry, I grew up in an industry like that. There's a couple of things that you want to recognize. First is if I'm under an agreement and I'm locked into an agreement, then it's unlikely that I'm going to go quit that agreement. So the only thing that you can do is you can add on, you can layer on your service so you can complement what they're already doing. So using those words, or what you can do is understand when their X date is. So if I understand when your X date is, and if I understand that, then I need to help you understand how you get out of your contract. Because in a lot of cases, there are clauses, evergreen clauses and renewal clauses that are buried deep into the EULA agreements that people have signed. So it's important that your rep understands both of those things when you're in a contractual environment. So if I call you up on the phone and I have a conversation with you, let's just say that I'm, I'm calling to set an appointment. I talk to a person, the person says, look, we're already under contract with one of your competitors and we're locked in and we really don't have a budget. So you gotta, you gotta ask yourself, what is the objection there, right? Is it the objection of no budget or is it an objection of I'm locked in? And the reality is it doesn't matter. The, the objection is to meeting with you, it's to giving you time. So if I'm prospecting in and I call you up and say, you know, let's, let's grab a few minutes. You say, I'm already under contract. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having a, we don't have any budget. I say, that's okay. That's fine. That's exactly why I want to get together now because your contract is going to come up sometime in the future. And it makes sense that we start having a conversation before your contract expires so that you don't roll into another term before you see all your options. How about Thursday at two? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So when I'm prospecting, what I'm trying to do is get someone on the telephone so that I can have a conversation with them. Now, at that point, then I'm qualifying. What I don't want to do is go down a road with someone who is under contract and get all the way to the end of the, to the close. And then they're saying, oh, we just found out that we're under agreement, blah, 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 blah. Because that's a really tough place to be because then my deal's dead because they're not going to they're not going to quit their contracts because and this is this is important. Some of your your competitors have really awful legal departments that will sue them. 
And if you're a company, you don't want a lawsuit. There's no, there's no, there's no room for that in your life. So they have to do something really, really bad for you to get out of your contract. So if I'm not like terribly unhappy with it, it's not going to change anything. So what I want to do early on in the qualifying phase, and this is your next step agreements, right? Is I want to say, um, who are you using right now? Well, we're using blah, 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 blah. Are you aware that you have a contract? Maybe we don't. Great. Let's find out when the X date of that contract is, when the contract comes up. And the next step you're asking for is send me a copy of your contract. I want to get a copy of it so I can look for it. And this is important for salespeople because if I understand when that is, if I understand when your X date is, then I have an opportunity to shift the conversation. So let's say that you and I have a conversation. Um, you're with, I'm with one of your competitors, and my X date is March. Well, there are some of your competitors who have a 90-day evergreen clause on their agreements. And this is important for anybody in, that sells anything into an industry where there are contracts. You have to understand what those contracts are. Because if there's a 90-day evergreen clause, if that company doesn't send in writing their intention to quit prior to that clause, they lose their choice. So when mm -hmm. I'm working with people, I, I say the one thing that we want to make sure that we do right now is we want to get a letter sent to the company that allows you to exercise your choice because the last thing you want to do is lose your options. Now, this is important for human beings, right? This is, this is the, the negativity bias that we're tapping into, and it's also something called psychological reactance. People don't want to lose options. And when you take an option away, people tend to dig in and they get more emotional. So as a salesperson, if you're thinking about it, it's the words you're using in that moment. I don't want you to lose your options. That doesn't mean that you're going to choose me. It just means that you're not going to lose your options. Because here's what's interesting about that. Unless it's a two or three year deal that's way, way out, if it's something that's in the near future, what I can do is I can still sign you, but I can get you to quit your competitor. So that when the, when the, when the competitor contract is up, then we're moving in. And especially if you have competitors who, and this happens a lot in contractual business, when the person sends the quit letter, right, the competitor comes back in and either tries to resell them, and you wanna make sure that you've coached them through that, or what the competitor will do is they'll, 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 they'll cut them off. Like the competitor will start yeah. doing things that impact the service. And you want to be there in case that happens. Hey, we can take care of this for you in case that happens. Now, if you're dealing with someone who, let's say they're in a long-term agreement, it's again, when they say, hey, I've got, I don't have any budget because I'm under contract with someone else, I go, hey, that's fine. Let's meet anyway, because this is the exact time we should be getting together so we can learn more about you. Then I want to focus on complementary. So let's walk through your current situation. This is discovery. Help me understand, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm making recommendations. Then I'm saying, you know, here's, here's what I recommend. What I recommend is we plug what we do here at Zoom Info into what you're already doing here. And that will allow you to solve these problems that this, this service over here doesn't solve for you. And then you can work on becoming their exclusive provider. But in most cases, what you want to do is you want to focus on how do I complement what they're already doing and how to make it easy for them? But typically when you're getting a budget, a budget objection that's happening way up front, because if you're in the middle of discovery and you don't understand budget, you, you, you're, you're, that horse is way out of the gate. So you need to be asking those questions up front and then figure out how do you complement what they're already doing. And that's, that's how you deal with contracts. Now, this is real important for you and for everyone who deals with contracts. You need to know your X dates. So one thing you're doing while you're prospecting is you're gathering information. If I know I'm with a competitor that has contracts, and you know all your competitors have contracts that lock people in. If you know that, 
then you're asking that person, and I say this all the time, I don't want to call you and over and over and over again if you're under contract and you have a contract expiration date or a contract in place. What I need to know is your contract expiration date so that I can get in front of you at the right time. So once I know those contract X dates, what I do is I've got those in my CRM. That's driving my prospecting up front. So then I'm calling you and saying, I'm saying, hey, Chris, this is Jeb from Zoom Info. The reason I'm calling is that your contract expiration with my competitor is coming up in May, and this is the best time for us to start talking. Let's start initiating that conversation. How about Thursday at 2? Or how about right now? Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that. That's smart outreach right there. So we received another question from the audience, uh, Mike, and he asks, what are some things you can do when you're asking for the business that will help eliminate objections? The most important thing you can do when you're asking for the business that eliminates rejections is go through the sales process. I know that sounds like that's not sexy. Nobody wants to hear that, right? They want to have the magic words that you can push. Boom, the person's going to go, yes, I'm, I'm absolutely into this. But the reality is sales is a process. The number one thing that you can do to make sure that people say yes when you ask is do discovery. Ask great questions. Spend your time helping people see that they have either an opportunity that they can capture if they use your service or, or product or that there's something wrong or some pain or some issue or some challenge in their business that's getting in the way of their ability to grow or to to solve problems. You need to know those up front. If you know those things, if you've gone through the process, almost always Closing is just something that you, you I mean, it's not even a, a process. It just happens, right? And typically, you've closed the deal someplace in the middle of the deal. You're just going through the, the, the formal process of them signing it, the contractor signing the order. Now, if you get to the point where you've done all the right things and you still get an objection, and you will, uh, it costs too much. Can you do better than this or what have you? One thing you have to understand is what's the difference between negotiating and an objection? Because sometimes people are saying, I need to negotiate. And it sounds like this, Chris, I really, really, really want to do business with you, but like mm -hmm. that is negotiation. That is, they've already made a decision to do business with you. You've closed the deal. All you got to do is figure out what the but is. And most of the time you can figure that out, right? So, so that's one thing. And those are my, my, my favorite words. I want to do business with you, but because now I've closed. So that's number one. Number two is, is making sure that you're confident. So when you move through the process, you have to be confident. Because in every sales conversation, especially at closing, it's the human being that exerts the greatest emotional control that has the highest probability of getting the outcome that they desire. So it's your ability to exert relaxed, assumptive, assertive confidence at the close that has the most impact. And that means that you have to ask. And you have to ask confidently for what you want. And that's managing your word. So, for example, if you're asking like this, would it kind of be okay if we could sort of maybe do a deal together? Like you're not going to get the deal because especially when you're dealing with type A people, they're just going to roll right over the top of you. And if you're not confident, they're not going to feel confident. But if you say, look, all we really need to do now is just sign this thing and we're going to get you set up next week. I just need, I need the last four digits of your credit card. When you do that, they're more likely to just say, okay. So all of those things are true. But let's say you've done all of that and you still get an objection like, look, I really need to think about this, or this is a big decision, or I'm not sure how we're going to integrate this into our system. And, and I'm sure you guys get this a lot. Like, this is a lot of work for us to get all of our salespeople set up on this. I'm just overwhelmed with that. So people tend to, to, to move back towards the status quo. There's two things that will drive that. One is they think that you're going to tank their business or you're going to hurt them or you're going to take time away from them. The other is they don't want to look bad in front of their boss or potentially get fired. 
typically that goes back to how did you manage the sales process? But if that happens, if the person says, look, this is, this costs too much. We don't have the budget. I need to think about this a little bit more. I don't know how we're going to implement this into our system. I'm a little bit concerned about the timeline or, you know, I don't know. Um, I need to talk to three other people or I need to go talk to your competitor and see what they can come back with. If that happens, the most important thing that you can do is stop, stop. Don't talk. Like, don't start pitching them on why. Don't start arguing them into why because you cannot argue another human being into believing they're wrong. The number one thing that you do is you stop and relate to them as a human being. I just say, Chris, that makes sense to me. This is a pretty big decision. And the last thing that you want to do is go through the process of implementing this and then no one uses it. I don't want that. You don't want that. So let me ask you a question. Other than that, what are you concerned about? Or can you help me understand when you say you don't have budget, what does that mean? So I want to relate to you as a human being, and then I need to clarify and isolate what the issue is. We want to start with relating to them as a human being. People have concerns. They have issues. They're scared. They're fearful. There are legitimate reasons why they feel the way they do. So I just relate to you. That step of just relating to you gives me that magic quarter of a second we talked about earlier to just get in control of my emotions. And it also shows you that, look, I'm here with you. This is collaborative. The next thing I want to do is I just want to make sure I understand it. So because some, sometimes people say, gosh, that really costs too much. And I, and I go, how so? Because they'll say it costs too much. And what they're saying is it's going to cost us too much to implement, or I don't want to pay for professional services to do this, or I don't know how much it's going to cost us to upgrade our Salesforce account in order to integrate you into the system. Like it could be any of those things. I need to understand what that really means. So I stop and I clarify and then I isolate. And it's really simple. I just say, okay, other than this particular issue right here, is there anything else that we're dealing with that we need to address? Because what I don't want to do is go down the road of working through and going through the process of helping you get past this objection if there's other things out there. Because all I'm going to do is just create this vicious loop that, I, that, I'll, that I'll lose. And then once that happens, my key thing is not to try to argue you out of believing what you believe, because what you believe is real to you. What I try to do is minimize it. This goes back to discovery. If I don't have ammunition, I can't minimize. If I haven't done good discovery and understood what's important to you, I can't minimize. So, for example, if you say, you know, I'm really concerned about the implementation, I might say, you know, one of the things that you told me was that your salespeople are not hitting the numbers that they needed to hit before, and you're under a lot of pressure. And this may be assuming we're talking to a CMO, for example, mm-hmm. and you're under a lot of pressure because, because you guys have got to hit your numbers and your, invest, your investors, your partners are asking for more. So what this is going to do is immediately like give you rocket fuel with your sales force. And the implementation is a lot easier than I think you might imagine. Plus, our team's going to be with you the entire way. The thing is, Chris, if you wait a little bit longer, you're going to be in this situation next month and the month after that and the month after that. And that's the one thing that you said that you can't have happen. So why don't we go ahead and get this set up and move this forward? I'm going to be with you every step of the way. That's minimized. That's not telling you that you're, what you're saying is wrong. It's just saying you told me that these things were the things that were important to you. These were important to you. I didn't say that. You said that. But imagine this, and you know this as a sales leader, you have a salesperson who skipped all those steps. They went, hello, you want to buy, right? They just skipped everything. So, so the person says, well, it costs too much. They have no ammunition. There's no possibility for minimizing it. So all they do is get into a debate with the customer right, about how much it costs. That is not overcoming an objection.
Yeah, I think sometimes people make assumptions what people's pain are instead of actually asking those questions. So it's, uh, there's a lot of things that need to be done on the front end. And I think you're absolutely right about that uh, discovery piece. So from our conversation and from my experience, it sounds like objections in sales seem inevitable and trying to avoid them at this point just seems stupid. What are some tricks you would suggest that we use to get objections on the table early? If you want to take one thing away from here is don't avoid an objection. Now, let me be clear. Don't put objections on the table. Like, don't walk in and go, you know, what a lot of people don't like about our service is this. Like, don't do that. I'm, I'm not trying to create negativity. I'm not trying to make people think that, like, there's something wrong with it. On, on the flip side, what I, wanted, what I don't want to do is get to the end, right, where I ask for the business and I get blindsided by something I didn't know about. The best way to avoid avoiding objections is to ask questions in the discovery process that sometimes you don't want to hear. So, for example, you know, one question is, it's a basic qualifying question, but it's a great question early on, is the last time you made a decision about where you were going to get data from, how did you do this? Walk me through the process. So I don't want to hear that this person doesn't have the juice to pull the trigger for this deal. But if I ask that question, I'm probably going to learn that either they are or they don't, or here's how we do this, or here's the process. Then I know that in advance, so then I can shift my next steps around that particular paradigm. If I see someone who's going, if I like look in their face, like or hear in their tone of voice, that there's some trepidation around this, or I hear an emotional cue that says, wow, something, something went wrong. I might say, you know, it sounds to me like you've had some bad experiences with providers like me in the past. Tell me about that. Most salespeople don't want to hear bad news, but it's way better to hear that bad news up front because then you have the opportunity to work through that with them, to, to, to have a conversation with them. And never forget, they're having a conversation with you. They chose to be in the conversation. They're there for a reason. So don't avoid those things. Ask the questions. Ask the hard questions. And the most important thing you can do as a salesperson as you're asking questions is, is what we call deep listening. And, but this is listening with all of your senses your eyes, your ears, and your intuition, your heart. So when you hear or see something that doesn't sound right, ask about it. And when you do, they'll start talking. And when they start talking, a lot of times there is an objection, but they will walk their way through the objection without you having to do anything for them. They'll just talk their way out of it. I like that a lot. I would also like to touch on safety uh, status quo and safety biases. Yeah, the status quo and the safety biases are two big problems for salespeople. So if we think about it like this, the number one reason why people choose not to do business with you is not your competitor, and it's not your price, and it's not the timeline, it's not any of those things. Uh, it is fear. It is, it is fear that if they do something new or different, that there's risk involved in that. Now, human beings are naturally risk-averse, and, and the reason that we're risk-averse is that by being risk-averse, over you know, the last 50,000 years, when you were risk-averse, you were more likely to pass on your genes. So this is a natural biological response. People who don't take undue risk tend to do better over time. So for human beings, we're always looking for what the problem might be. So for example, if you offer me free lunch, that sounds really, really good, right? Free lunch is awesome. But if I become someone else's lunch or, or you know, I get eaten for lunch right on the way to my free lunch, that's a bad thing. So I'm naturally going to think about what's the risk of getting a free lunch from you. 
the safety bias is, what can I do to avoid risk? And you have to know that all the way up front. This is why going through the sales process, going through the micro step, micro commitments, and the next steps is so important because along the way, what's happening is you're building that trust. Do I like you? Do you listen to me? Do you make me feel important? Do you get me in my problems? Do I trust and believe you? Trust trumps the safety bias. There's also status quo bias. Status quo bias says that doing nothing is better than doing something. So if I stay where I am, even if where I am is dysfunctional, that's better than taking a risk in the future for something that's unknown. And the safety bias, again, the, the easiest, fastest way to, to deal with the safety bias is to build trust. It's to get the objections on the table. It's to understand what's important to them. And it's to understand that you're dealing with a human being. Now, what I typically do, especially if there is a complicated implementation process, so if it's complex, and this is important, especially for SaaS services, because as a business owner, the one thing that, you know, that drives me crazy, and if you're dealing with someone like me and you're a SaaS company, um, is how many products have I bought in the past that, I, that I'm subscribing to that no one in my organization is using, right? That's my biggest issue. And then what's the impact of getting it implemented in my business? So what I try to do when I'm dealing with a situation like that is I walk through the implementation process. How am I going to help you? How's my team going to help you get this thing implemented step by step by step that's going to alleviate that particular fear before I ask you to buy? The same thing, by the way, is true if, you're, if you sell business services in any form that is even reasonably complex, the same thing. How do I help this business owner reduce the risk that my service, product, what have you, is going to be disruptive to their business or to their customers. So in my presentations, I'm always focusing on transition. What's the cost of transition? How are we going to transition you? And how do we minimize the disruption to your business in the process? When you do those, that, that, that one thing, just focusing on that, you, you help minimize the fear of the future. And you become aware of, in some cases, some early objections that you can pull out that allow you to deal with those things before you're having a conversation about how much it costs. Because once you're having a conversation about how much it costs and fear of, you know, of, of moving forward, status quo gets involved in that, it all gets kind of mixed up together and it's, it's difficult to separate those two things. So the, the key message here is you have to just be aware that human beings are incredibly predictable. You are, I am, we're all the same. And the same biases that your customers are facing are the same ones that you face. So treat people like they're human beings, but follow the sales process. Trust the sales process. The process works. It's there for a reason. And part of the process is along the way, as you advance through the sales process, through those micro-commitments, you are doing things that are minimizing the status quo bias and minimizing the safety bias. That's really interesting. Uh, so before we get into questions, something else that stood out from your book was saying, yes, has a number. Can you please walk us through what that means and why this is important when talking about those objections? If I were to go into your business as a consultant, one of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to look at your entire conversion funnel. And I'm going to break your conversion funnel into, into micro ratios. So what's the ratio between the number of outbound attempts that you make by phone and a contact? And what's the number of contacts to an appointment? And what's the number of appointments to a next step commitment? And what's the number of, of next steps to this and all the way through the process? So it's understanding what your ratios are because when you look at your ratios and you start pulling the ratio levers, you can, in some cases, double your sales really fast. Like, this is how you get acceleration. 
the most important thing to understand about your ratios is you can't just take ratios independent of other ratios. You have to always look at, if I change this, what's going to happen to the long-term implications of, to my business? Like, what are the unintended consequences of changing this? So, for example, let's say that you want to improve your closing ratio. Well, you can improve your closing ratio if you put fewer deals in the pipeline, right? So, if you only put, like totally, absolutely stone-cold qualified deals in the pipeline, your closing ratio is going to go up, right? But at the same time, you're sinking your pipeline because you're not putting things in that are marginal that you could close if you applied the right sales process. So you just have to be careful on that. But the bigger issue with yes as a number is just helping salespeople understand that you're going to get more no's than you get yeses, especially when you're prospecting. So for example, when we wrote the book Objections, we went to New York City and I took a camera with me and, uh, and I, had a, I had a guy like with a camera and I would walk up to people and I had a little microphone and I would say, would you sing Mary Had a Little Lamb to me? Now, if you've been to New York City and you're in Boston, so probably the same thing would happen in Boston, you get a lot of FUs when you do that. Like you get people like, I, I, I got flipped off over and over and over again. And because <laughs> like, I'm a smiling Southern guy, like, hey, could, you sell, could you sing Mary Had a Little Lamb? But it turned out that when we looked at the ratio of times that we asked, it took 11 times to get one person to sing the song. Yes has a number. So if I ask enough times, if I, if I ask enough people, I'm going to win. And if I change how I ask, if I change my messaging, if I change my techniques, I'm going to win more often. Yes has a number. I don't know what your number is, but if you understand your number, then you change your techniques, the things that you and I are talking about on this call, then you can improve your yes number. And if you improve your yes number, you begin bending win probability in your favor. And when you do that, you end up selling more. That's really interesting. Uh, that yes has a number of philosophies is pretty wild to hear. I'm almost tempted to ask you to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb right now. So thanks for, uh, thanks for walking through the art and science of getting past the no with objections. Uh, we have a lot of questions from the audience, so I'd obviously like to get right into that. Um, looks like Danielle asked, you mentioned the four type of objections and when does each type of objection usually happen? The four types of objections are prospecting objections, red herring objections, micro commitment objections, and buying commitment, buying commitment objections. So buying commitment objections are easy. They're typically when you're asking someone to sign a contract, sign an order, uh, or give you money. So that's, that's typically towards the end of your, of your sales process. And if you're on a one-call close, right, it's at the end of your one-call close. You have prospecting objections. Those are objections to time. Prospecting objections and prospecting, all you're asking for is time. The hardest ask in sales, but it's a no to time. Red herring objections typically are happening on your initial call. So my initial meeting with my customer. Now, that could be on the same call that I prospected on if I have a shorter sales cycle. It could be on a future, but it's typically happening there. And it will typically happen when you're doing group presentations. So if you're doing like a group demo or if you're doing anything like that, but red herrings almost always happen at the beginning of a sales call. Micro-commitment objections will happen at the end of the call when you're asking your prospect to move to the next step. So looks like uh, John asked, why do we think we fear rejection? Can we control that? Your fear of rejection is not psychological. It is biological. So you fear rejection because of the way our brains evolved. If we go back, say, 40,000 years ago, when the modern human brain was really coming into its present form, we all lived in caves, and we lived in teepees, and we lived in small groups of human beings that relied on each other. We sat around a campfire. We had to go out and hunt or gather for our food. And if you didn't have that group of human beings with you, then you would probably not survive. 
So if you got rejected or banished by the group, if you got sideways with the people in your group and they kicked you out of the cave, it was essentially a death sentence. So human beings evolved sensitivity to being rejected as a way of passing on our genes. In fact, human beings that were more sensitive to rejection had a tendency of being more successful in life and passing their genes on to the next generation. So we flip forward to our modern society Rejection still, our fear of rejection still serves us very well. So when we work with, in, in small groups of people at, uh, at our businesses, when we went to school with our friends, when we, when we you know, exist and operate uh, and work in groups with our family, our sensitivity to where the lines are drawn helps us interact better with other people. Where it's a problem is in sales, where essentially your job is to go out and find rejection. I mean, that's the job. And it's not a natural thing for human beings to do, to go do that. Like to, I go, you know, I say, Chris, here's your job a day. I want you to go get rejected a hundred times. Like that's, that's essentially when your people come in, in the morning, that's what you're asking them to do. The human being, like I'm, I'm hardwired to avoid rejection or banishment at all costs. So, so the answer to this question, A, is understanding that. It's not psychological, it's biological. You have to understand that. Number two is understand that if you don't get rejected in sales, you're probably going to have skinny kids. You're not going to make it. And, and with that awareness, what happens is that at that point, you can begin changing your behavior. You can become aware of your trepidation to ask for the business assertively, assumptively, and confidently. And if you're aware of that, then you can rise above the emotion that you feel, or you can't, you can't control your emotions, and you don't choose your emotions, you only choose your response. But with that technique, you rise above the emotion and you ask confidently, assertively, assumptively for the deal. You also understand that by going through the sales process, the act of going through each step in the sales process, all those micro-commitments along the way, that allows you to manage your natural fear of rejection, it allows you to take the person through a journey that pulls them towards a place where they buy without rejecting you. And it also helps you understand that most cases, and in fact, almost every objection you get is not rejection. It just feels that way. The only time you really get rejection is if you are walking down the street in New York asking people to sing Mary Had a Little Lamb, or you're calling up and interrupting strangers asking for time. In those cases, you can get what is real rejection, but most of the time it's not. So with that awareness, you can learn how to manage and control your emotions in the moment. You can learn how to manage your own behavior. And if you go at it enough times, if you ask enough times, you begin to develop something called obstacle immunity, which is your brain's natural ability to face something that looks really, really hard enough times so it becomes a lot easier to handle. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting and good feedback there. So how can Zoom Info help you prepare for objections? The biggest thing is, is understanding the people that you're selling to. So with Zoom Info, you have such rich and deep data that, by the way, is so easy to get to that before I walk into a sales call, before I make a phone call to someone, before I'm prospecting to a C-level executive, I'm able to dive into Zoom Info and I'm able to pull that data in along with data that I've collected in other places and I can create a profile of this human being and I, I can begin to anticipate things that are gonna be important to them. So Zoom Info helps me particularly in discovery to ask the right questions, to engage the prospect, to make sure that I'm talking to the right people in the organization and to understand what the stakeholder array looks like inside of an organization so that I'm not going in single siloed. 
because this is and this is a big place where objections happen. I'm I'm going in and I'm looking at the entire stakeholder array and I'm beginning to build relationships with each of those people inside that array. And then my larger accounts, that can be a year to 18 months of work to build those relationships before we even move into the sales process. And in my smaller deals, my, 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 my more short cycle opportunities that we work on, um, it allows me to understand who I'm dealing with, a little bit about their business, what some of their particular motivations are. And with the data that I get from, from Zoom Info, I'm able to go to places like LinkedIn, for example, using that data. And it helps me to, to pull in a complete profile of that person. And, um, and, and we come off as more knowledgeable and, uh, and, and more caring about them and their business. In other words, we make them feel important. And when you make people feel important, they feel an obligation and they're much more likely to move to each step and the sales process with you without giving you an objection. So Donna, it looks like I asked, I feel like I'm constantly getting the runaround from some prospects. Uh, example here is she's providing a demo, providing another demo, uh, and they just keep bringing up competition. Can you share how to get past these common resistances? But a basic qualifier for me, no matter whether it's an enterprise sale where I'm dealing with a single stakeholder in, 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 in the midst of a much bigger stakeholder array, or I'm dealing with you know one or two people, it's engagement. I'm looking for engagement. Is the person willing to match my effort? Are they willing to go through the process with me? So if you're doing demo after demo after demo after demo, what you have to ask yourself is A, are you demoing to different people along the way versus a group of people all at one time? Or are you not doing discovery up front enough to understand what's important to them so you're shaping the demo around them and bridging to the things that are important to them? Or are you not confidently and assertively asking for and achieving the next step? We've done the demo. The next step is a pilot. The next step is a this. The next step is a this. So most of the time when you're getting the runaround, right, it's because you're delusional. You think that they're into you, but they're just not that into you, right? So you're, 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 you're not testing and asking for engagement. And that's, by the way, what micro-commitment objections or micro-commitment micro um, requests do. The micro-commitment request, it says, Chris, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to match my effort? And if you're not, and I, I you know, effectively deal with the micro-commitment objection and you're still not, then all I do is move on to the next prospect because I'm not spending my time with people who aren't going to buy from me. My time's way too valuable. Yep. Totally agree. Some will, some won't, who cares who's next. So right. do you, so Derek just asked, do you find being prepared with a script and researching before calling is a plus to help get past an objection? It depends on who I'm calling. So if I'm calling a CEO, CMO, CIO, um, I'm calling someone at that level. I'm calling the, you know, C, the COO. Preparing in advance is critical because you're probably going to get one shot at that level of an executive. You're not going to get two. You're not going to get any more than that. But most of us aren't doing that every day. Most of us are calling everyday prospects that are working for small and mid-sized businesses because that's the bulk of the businesses that we're dealing with. We're dealing with um, mid-level managers and Fortune 1000 companies because those are the people in most cases that are making the decisions. I know everybody wants to go C-level, but you're unlikely to, you know, to, to, to get the CEO, you know, a big multinational, you know, Fortune 200 com company to have a conversation with you about whatever it is that you're selling. So most of us are calling people who are just like us every single day. And all we're doing is asking for time. So the most important thing that you can do is your research to know whether or not this is a company that you want to call. 
and the person that you want to call. That's number one. And then you ask for time. And look, if the person tells you no, then if you think you need to do some more research in order to figure that out, go do the research. But far too many salespeople are using research as a reason to plan, 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 to, plan, to avoid making the call in the first place. And research is not prospecting and at and, and, and any level. So in most cases, the best thing you can do is have a qualified targeted list of businesses that you want to sell to and a qualified targeted list of people that you want to call inside those businesses. And by the way, Zoom Info is brilliant at this. And so I can build a good targeted list and then I can call and then I can ask for time. And if I get the time, then I do the research before I go into my first call. So I'm prepared for the first call. I'm prepared for the questions I'm going to ask and what I'm, how I'm going to advance and who else I need to talk to. But don't get yourself hung up in doing all this research in order to make a call to ask someone to give you 30 minutes of their time. And I know there's a lot of people who don't want to hear me say that, but that's the truth. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. You've got questions about Zoom Info. Reach out to the folks at Zoom Info. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying this as a user of Zoom Info. I love this product. I love the platform. The data is rich. It's, it, it, it helps my team sell more. I can tell you that we're doubling the size of my company every single year. And Zoom Info is a key reason why this is happening. And if you want to, to give your sales team rocket fuel, trust me on this. Go get Zoom Info. So get in contact with Zumepo and Chris and his team, and they'll be able to give you a demo and help you out. Awesome. Thanks, Jeb. Really appreciate the time today. Me too. Thank you so much.